Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Alex Stewart. Hi Joe. Seb Stafford Bloor. Morning Joe Devine. Oh morning. It's a Thursday. Uh, oh no, it's a well it is for us. It's a Friday for you. Uh, we're here with some game relevant stuff. Uh, Relato the weekend. I believe there are actually some games on the Thursday evening that I haven't looked at. Um, let me just quickly look now. Yes, so Liverpool-Chelsea, big game this evening. Uh, Fulham-Tottenham, also a big game. West Brom-Everton. Now, this is going to happen sometimes, That uh, as we record on a Thursday and release on a Friday, we won't be able to catch the Friday night game. So, unfortunately, this episode isn't as game-relevant as previous episodes have been, and uh, I can only apologise for that. But uh, I'm sure if you were to visit, uh, I don't know, the one of the other big football podcasts they do a better job of explaining it anyway so enjoy that uh, but we're here today to talk to you about manchester city versus wolves uh we're here to talk to you about foggy south london and uh, the workhouses or uh, crystal palace manchester united uh, there's also a little sprinkling of munch and gladback dortmund joe's stats and quotes database uh, and also there is a discussion of uh, well ahead of the weekend i suppose the big manchester derby we also didn't mention i don't believe but i did write down in my notes to mention it um that not only are manchester city uh, who who faced wolves on tuesday playing manchester united in a derby at the weekend but wolves are also playing in a derby at the weekend uh so there you go have i missed anything out seb I don't think so, Joe. That was pretty comprehensive. I mean, well, there's a, a strange interlude, which is all about special lions, but that will kind of speak for itself as and when it comes up, I think. As you should expect. Uh, well, anyway, speaking of special lions, I think within any kind of ecosystem, there's a special, there's there's there's, there's speciality, isn't there? And there's extra edge and, uh, you know, extra sharp teeth. And I'm talking, of course, about the athletic. Because what the Athletic have done is that they've come here, they've come to this country, they do speak the language, yeah, it's not like an immigration problem, but they've come here, and uh, what they've actually done is they've they've built a good business, and they've hired quite a lot of the best people who work in the business in this country. And uh, that's a really good thing, because <laughs> it's just quite... Yeah. <laughs> They, they, yeah, okay. They are they're the apex predator of the football market. <laughs> yeah. Um, by which, of course, I mean they've gone out. They've seen who's who's that who's that guy who always knows what's going on. Um, it's not the dude from the Quincy Jones song. Might as well be though. It's David Ornstein. You know they've got they've got a David Ornstein. They've got fuck man. They've got all the best people and that's what i'm saying when you want to read the best people you got to go to the best places and just like a special lion if you go to the athletic you will be able to get your teeth around some juicy elephant that's all i'm saying so visit theathletic.com forward slash tifo and uh, i believe the current offer is one pound per week as a special introductionary offer so just check it out. If you don't like it, just cancel and it's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. But I can tell you, we're going to do some very, very exciting stuff for the Euros. And uh, what a pleasure it is to be involved with uh, such, uh, you know, top of the food chain gang. Yeah? Roaming around the Sahara and uh, just just making great content for all the other animals. <laughs> the Sahara? I don't do you know not, what Do I'm you not saying? mean the Serengeti? I, I think you mean the Serengeti. Okay. Uh, that's all for now. Uh, let's get into today's episode, and I will leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace 
of uh, everyone that's here. Okay, let's begin with Manchester City 4, One Wolves. Yeah, One Wolves. Uh, how have City saved their season? Because in game week 10 of the season, City were in 11th place. And uh, since then, they haven't lost. Uh, and they've won all but two games, which is almost boring, isn't it? Um, incidentally, those two losses were uh, home to Leicester in game two of the season and uh, away at Spurs in game eight. Um, and there were nil-nils against... United, but what what did Guardiola change? I mean, I'm gonna to come to you for this, Alex, because I think it's a pretty um, it's a remarkable turnaround from the inconsistency that we saw from City at the beginning of the season. I mean, I, you, you know, you and I have had conversations before before Christmas where we thought every team was just going to be inconsistent and this was going to be an unusual season. It seems that City have just, I mean, they've won the title now, basically, effectively, they have, right? Yeah, I th- I, th- I think it's extremely hard to conceive of anyone being able to catch them at this point. The main thing they've done really is is they tightened up. Um, obviously, one of the problems they had last season was the the absence of Fernandinho for significant parts of it, um, or the requirement for Fernandinho when he was there to play in central defence, and this caused spacing problems, particularly in front of the back four. And through kind of going back to really inverting the fullbacks quite a lot, and Cancelo has been particularly good this season. Uh, Pep has basically compressed the space between the defensive line and the midfield line. That has commensurately brought the attacking line slightly deeper back as well, uh, and the absence of of a proper striker in a lot of their games has done that too. So this is why City aren't necessarily converting all of the chances every time they they get the ball into the final third, but it does mean that they're much, much less open. Um, There's much less of a space, particularly in front of the right centre-back, the passing network in that area is tighter and so they can control possession a lot more easily and they're much less likely to get turned over by a counter-attack. Do you know, the one thing I noticed again in this in this game in particular, Alex, was that when City lost the ball, particularly in Wolves' half, um, they won it back very quickly in a way that reminded me of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool of a couple of years ago, but also they looked at their most dangerous without the ball, which is an interesting thing for a Guardiola team. Well, I think it's partly because when... When you have players quite close to the ball, if if there's pressing, what that also does is it means that if you win the ball back, then transition is more straightforward because you have a greater number of players around the ball. This is why when Klopp first introduced pressing at Liverpool, proper pressing, he was he was kind of bringing as many as four or five players around the opposition player in possession so that not only was that opposition player stifled, but also if the ball was won back, then there are a plethora of close passing options that means that the team can then counter-attack. And I think Pep's been able to do that again because of this compression, that the team is more vertically compact, so there's less space between the defenders and the forwards. And this means that if the ball is won back, City aren't kind of then pausing and thinking, ah, well, the nearest pass to me is a sort of slightly speculative 25 yarder it's it's a lot more condensed and then the team all push up together as a unit and the fact that the inverted fullbacks are cutting inside and helping out that midfield line also means that they can push higher up the pitch with a greater degree of confidence you've indicated also that you want to talk about Juan Malisho yeah I just think that it's worth noting that that this is a guy who's been 
a significant influence in uh, in Pep's career. And when Arteta moved to uh, Arsenal to take over, obviously City were without an assistant head coach and, and Ligio came into that role. He's a kind of important figure in the development of Spanish football. He's largely credited with introducing the 4-2-3-1, but Guardiola also played under him uh, in a slightly weird stint uh, over in the Mexican league where Dorados actually got relegated, but probably shouldn't have done. They had weird rules about relegation at the time. I think Guardiola learned a lot from him uh, and and kind of developed his understanding of possessional play under him as a player. But I think Guardiola also really likes to have somebody around that he can bounce ideas off that he respects. And that's that's something that you see with, if you read the Marty Pernarau books uh, of his time in Bayern, particularly with Dominesh Torrent, you know, having somebody there that he can talk to, develop his ideas, and then go away and kind of put them into practice himself. And I think having Ligio there, somebody that he respects, somebody who understands the way that he wants to play football, has probably been, if not a massively significant part, I think it's definitely helped City. Did You said possessional play. Yeah. Is that a thing? I thought it was positional play. Uh, I, yes, I suppose it is positional play, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> you, you you flexed then like that was actually. <laughs> I was just I was just going to try and style that out, but it's like what I do in arguments sometimes <laughs> when someone accuses you of a mistake and you go, "No, I meant that." No, and no, this it's, is why. It's it's um, weird. As, I mean, it's possession football, but it's yeah. yeah I know. It's hey, I get it wrong. In it's been a long week. What can I say? Anyway, uh, quadruple, um, Seb. <sighs> Hmm. City returned to the Etihad, right? 2 0 up against Mönchengladbach uh, for the second leg of the Champions League tie, uh, round of 16. Given the performance in the first leg, it's very difficult to, to see them not progressing. Um, in April, they are due to play Tottenham in the final of the Carabao League Cup, and they're away to Everton in the quarterfinals of the FA Cup on the 20th of March. The point I want to make is that it's not unusual for City to be in all the competitions at this stage in the season, but. With the you know the quality of other teams so far this season, is talk of a quadruple or a treble really that silly? You know, given that relative strength, I do feel as if we have this conversation this time every year, where yeah. all of a sudden we all notice that City are qualified in all four competitions, and some bright spark just chucks the word quadruple into their copy. But this season it seems particularly fair and reasonable because, hey, City. And, you know, for some fairly obvious reasons, City do seem to be coping with the oddity of the season far better than anybody else. And if you look at those games that you mentioned, they're going to go through against Gladbach. Gladbach cannot retrieve a two-goal deficit away from home. They will almost certainly beat Spurs at Wembley, I'd have thought, unless something unlikely happens. I would back them to get through against Everton. And they have the league pretty much won already. Uh, it's, It's a funny one, isn't it? Because... There's so many um, material differences to this season and there are so many ways in which if you wanted to, you could kind of place an asterisk next to it. And yet, theoretically, it could become the most successful season for a single club in British footballing history. There's some good teams left in the Champions League though, right? We've got, who have we got well, left? I mean, theoretically. Are there though? I mean, there are some good sounding teams. There are some teams with some big reputations, but are there any are there? teams who are playing particularly well. PSG a decent... Dortmund. Uh, Dortmund played well in the Champions League. I know they're not playing that well in the Bundesliga. 
Uh, PSG own. played well against Barcelona. I mean, PSG are going through, right? PSG are probably going through, but would you Liverpool, say... Liverpool, the oh. old enemy, they're going through. I know they're shit now, but um, yeah. Real Madrid Bayern is Munich still going through. Also not that impressive. Bayern Munich are less than they were, clearly, despite oh, running no, away with you're the, right. Not running away with the Bundesliga, actually. Being tailed, being, uh, being hauled in by Leipzig. So it's competitive. And I, if you were to pick a winner now, City would be top of your list uh, very recently. What if, what if you got to a final where it was PSG versus Man City or... Qatar versus the UAE. <laughs> be very That's, exciting. That would involve some very punchy think pieces being written in the day before, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, it could so it could be a quadruple. Isn't it funny? No one cares about treble anymore, do they? No one cares about the treble anymore. Old news, Joe. Old, it's old, old news. news. Been done. Nineteen ninety nine. Already done. No one cares anymore. Now it's got to be the quadruple. Do you think maybe they'll add another one, or they'll start including the charity shield to make it the the pentuple? Was it the pen? Would that be the pentuple? Do you remember when? Um, do you remember when Liverpool won a treble of things, not including either the Champions League or the Premier League, and that very briefly became a thing, like a, a point of contention yeah. about what was a proper treble and what it's wasn't. It's not a treble, is it? Look, that's not a real treble. The treble has to include the top competition in Europe. That's the only. Otherwise, it's not a real treble. That's my take. Can um, you imagine if Twitter had existed then and the kind of the just how boring that argument would have become and how quickly it would have become boring. It's been amazing. Yeah, it would have been horrible. Anyway, let's talk about Wolves now. Um, because Wolves actually put in a spirited performance in, in, in the in the second half. Uh, there was a conversation ongoing uh, I was having with some people, some human beings yesterday. The conversation included the idea that Wolves might be the most boring Premier League team. And I thought on the basic, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe Wolves fans agree. I think Crystal Palace fans might disagree with that. But I think that the conversation happened yesterday on the basis of their performance against Manchester City. I felt that that was a little bit unfair because they had quite a spirited performance in the second half. I thought there were moments where they looked like they were going to score on the counter. They, there was a two 5v3 moments, uh, which was interesting. The thing I want to talk about, though, is Adama Traore because apparently, didn't know this until the game, but uh, Adama Traore is yet to score or assist in the league so far this season. And I wondered, Seb or Alex, is that just because of the lack of Jimenez really impacting? I mean, I know that uh, he might have been the main talking point about Wolves' team last season, but he wasn't the focal point of the team, was he? No, but I would say a lot ran through him. And to his credit, that that Jimenez point is, um, you know, is pretty fair. Uh, there was a not just a kind of a, an understanding in the build-up phases, but also at the point where goals were finished. Um, if you look at sort of how many of Raul Jimenez's goals came from cutbacks and from his late movement in the box. But also, remember, Wolves lost uh, Diogo Jota, who I know um, had a bit of a, a, an underwhelming start to last season, but, you know, had a, a few really strong purple patches. Um, strong purple patches? Just purple patches, I think we'll go with. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I should have had an extra coffee before I started this. Uh, and so, okay, so from from a from a broad perspective, you're looking at Wolves as an attacking unit, as a group, and you're you're looking at a system which has pretty much had to be redesigned, and also which has had to incorporate lots of different forwards at different points. So Jimenez at the start of the season, William William Jose, uh, Patrick Catrone at some point. Um, Are you now so German that you just avert a dirt a word? I, I finish every day with a German lesson for two hours. You've only, you've only been there for up. a week. You tried to call him Villian Jose. <laughs> I, I just, it's like, uh, I'm so aware of my pronunciations now. 
um, <laughs> that I'm kind of caught between languages and not in a good way because I don't know any German. I just... Das ah, ist schlecht. Willian Hose. So him, yeah? Yeah, him, <laughs> the yeah. boy from Sociedad, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of moving parts there. And so... I don't. I don't think Adam Traore is playing at the standard that he was last season, especially when he steps in field. Like his work in field um, is less than it was. He's not as um, he's not as efficient. A few of his bad habits on the ball have come back. He um, he doesn't release it as quite as quickly or as as cleverly as he did last year. Uh, but there are mitigating circumstances too. There are mitigating circumstances, but he hasn't scored a goal or an assist in the league, <laughs> Seb. That's not, I'm not saying like he's not playing that well and he's missing his pals. And, and I don't, it's not like, I'm not being heavily critical of uh, Adama Traore. Um, I suppose I am, really. What I'm saying is I'm sorry for being heavily critical of Adama Traore, but after 26 games, not a goal or an assist is quite something for a player who really lit up, lit up the skies above Wolverhampton last year. Well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take a quick left turn there because um, lighting up the skies around Wolverhampton. If you go to Molyneux, and anybody listening who, who's never been to Wolverhampton, go to a game there because when you arrive at the stadium, it's kind of sunk into the um, into the landscape. So you you walk through the city, uh, the town even, um, and you arrive there and it's beneath you. As Would it be you, a victim of flooding? There. No, because I don't think there's a there's a a river or a, an ocean nice. Um, nice. anywhere in the black country. I mean, there's probably a river, but, you know, nothing which, uh, you know, poses a flooding threat. Um, and so you can stand above it. And at nighttime for night games, there's this just beautiful glare from the floodlights. It's the mecca of Instagram football pictures um, yeah. in the Premier League, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. Nighttime at Molyneux. Fantastic. That's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of my contribution. Thanks, Seb. <laughs> Said good, said good, said. There's definitely something to be said for this this issue with with the forward line, though, because he has managed uh, almost. Well, he's got the second highest total for expected assists for Wolves this season uh, per ninety, just after Pedro Neto. So he is producing passes that that should lead to opportunities, not an enormous amount by any stretch. But the fact that Wolves have have had this attacking system so disrupted, the fact that when, you know, while Jimenez, like Seb says, was getting forwards into the box and finishing off chances, a lot of what Jimenez also did was drop very, very deep and spray passes out to the wide attackers before them pushing forwards. That kind of link to to get the wide attackers into aggressive positions quickly with, with transitions just isn't happening to the same degree with Wolves. That's one of the reasons why they've become so boring. And that's kind of what Triori thrived off. Um, so, you know, he is he is still producing passes. Sometimes you have to look at a player who's registering decent expected assists and, and not getting any assists as being the fault of somebody else. And I think that is part of the issue. But you can't overstate the importance of Jimenez's injury to them. I think it's just completely changed the way that they have to play. Yeah. Well, speaking about the way that they have to play, uh, Nuno Espirito Santo signed a three-year contract just before the season started. What do we think the next three years will look like? I, he's a he's a good coach. He's benefited to a degree. I think everybody appreciates, particularly when Wolves came up from the Championship, the relationship with uh, certain agents afforded Wolves a, a high quality of player that maybe they wouldn't have got in the Championship otherwise, but. He's built a very solid system. 
I think the issue is that that system has been shown up because of the loss of of such a key player um, that you know he now needs to find a way of adapting that. Uh, William Jose is not exactly the same kind of striker, but is not dissimilar. But is also I think twenty eight or twenty nine, so he's not necessarily a long term mainstay in that role. Um, I think we can see with the way that he's getting more out of. Pedro Neto, for example, that he has the ability to develop players a little bit. Um, but I think Wolves need to kind of push on and, and start finding better attacking solutions. Um, and, and that's what I expect he'll have to work on quite substantially because, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be strong enough to stay up. But I think fans will start to look at this slightly turgid style and think, well, we, we need more than that. Seb, I'm going to commit the cardinal sin now of talking about a club outside the top six. Uh, and uh, where their manager might go other than the club that they're already at. Nuno, what do you think about... I mean, we've heard from Alex what we think about Wolves' future might look like. Nuno, what do you think his future looks like? Because he's, he's an exciting prospect, you know? Prospect, I mean, he looks a bit old already. I really like him at Wolves. I could certainly make the case for him going elsewhere. You could probably have made the case for him going to Arsenal before they made the Arteta change. You could probably also have done the same thing for Spurs prior to Mourinho's arrival. Or post his departure if you're feeling mischievous um i think that i think the future for him or the short-term future is going to involve a pretty difficult rebuild alex mentioned the ages of some of the players particularly in attack but also if you look at um you know jamatino's best days behind him still a fabulous player yes but uh, he can't go on forever is ruben neves i wonder whether ruben neves is um potential has flattened out a little bit over the last few years I don't know if that's fair or not um, but you need to reconstruct different parts of that side because at the moment it's sort of like it used to be but not quite what it's going to become if that makes sense um, so I think in that situation it's really really important to keep a manager in situ because then at least you have the stability in the in the um, in the dugout in the technical area um, and I'd like to see him lead that I like I'm curious as to what he would create from what is now a you know more than a standing start. He's in the Premier League. Wolves have had a couple of years of broadcasting payments. They've got a little bit of a reputation, and Molyneux's become known as somewhere where really good players can go and can remain visible and can develop, and if they want to, can get moves to really big clubs. See Diogo Jota, for an example. And I, I'd like to see what what Nuno could do there. I mean, you know, obviously we've touched on the George Mendes relationship. So if you pair those two up, uh, you add in Wolves' Premier League stability and you begin a period of redesign, I think that looks quite healthy. I mean, it, I'm not saying it wouldn't be difficult and it wouldn't look a bit um, up and down for a few months, maybe even an entire season, but that's a, that's a project well worth his time because is he going to get a job at Real Madrid or Man United or Bayern Munich? No. So isn't the best opportunity to try and elevate the club that he's at who are who do have a lot of potential when you've got that ownership group and that agent behind you you do have a lot of potential and so he's really restricted to wolves or quite a few lateral moves in my opinion yes that makes sense um do you know there was one more thing that i thought about the manchester city wolves game before we move on uh, and that was to ask um have you ever seen that video of when the lions take down the elephant is, is that just one video? 
No, I mean, you know, there's a particular, there's a famous clip. I think it appeared in one of the David Attenborough uh, wildlife documentary programs. But uh, there's a particular group of lions that live in, I don't know, the world somewhere. I can't remember where, but they are special lions in that they hunt and eat elephants. And they're like the only lions in the world that do this in this particular area. And watching them do it is just horrifying, <laughs> like horrifying watching this happen. It would be an old, sometimes a young elephant maybe, but like an old bull elephant or whatever, running for its life, slowly being tired as, uh, you know, tens of lions just hop out of the shadows of the night onto the back and claw away at the thick uh, skin uh, until, basically until the elephant is so tired that it falls over. And then they just, I don't know, they just rip it to shreds. Lions definitely hunt during the day, though. These these lions hunt, were hunting at night in the video. Yeah, your yeah. your special lions. I'm confused. That's the thing you pick on from my story. It's like, oh, actually, I think you'll find you're wrong because actually lions hunt in the day. Uh, listen, mate, these special lions were hunting at night. If okay. you haven't seen the video, then you're not sufficiently connected to society. So get there's, there's the handful of things on BBC One that you have to watch or you'll be ejected from the country. No, but the, the special lions, and it felt every time that uh, Wolves had the ball, Man City lost the ball for a couple of minutes, it just felt a lot. I was reminded of the, the multiple Who, who's lions. Who's the special lion in this analogy? No, every Man City player is a lion. There's not just who's one lion. lion. Like, one lion so, couldn't take down it. Why are these? These. Why, <laughs> this why, why, be why, so difficult. To yeah, but why? 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 Why are you? Why are you presenting wolves as some kind of mighty elephant plodding through that can only be taken down by a special lion? We've just spent ten minutes talking about wolves' flaws, and now you're there are kind of. Uh, you know, an unlikely survivor in a dangerous, hostile world. That's, uh, they're, that's weird. They're slow. And they kind of are an unlikely survivor. They're not in the relegation zone, right? They're not near the relegation zone. They're not going to be relegated. They are going to survive. They're big and they're slow, apart from Adama Troy. No, they've got like a, so. a big George Mendes sat on their back with a rifle. I mean, it's, Listen, mate, it's, listen. Can, both can Man you, City yeah? only it, play it transpires, at night? It transpires from the last time I did an analogy, actually. People <laughs> fucking loved it, yeah? People like Rocket yeah, that... League. And you two, <laughs> you just don't know what's funny or what's good uh -huh. or what's clever. You have to trust me that Man City were like the Lions taking okay. down the elephant okay and if you haven't seen the video yeah. then go and fucking watch it because it's a good video uh we'll be back after this to talk about crystal palace nil in the fog against manchester united righty tighty uh crystal palace nil nil manchester united oh what it a foggy south london yeah the women and the children all came from the you know they, they saw the spectacle coming from the uh uh from the industrial... Ooh, the players all came down on the the famed locomotive. <laughs> what is wrong with you? It's a fuck. It's fuck, you know, and fucking... He's, I think he's you know. trying to recreate the beginning of whichever Dickens novel it is. Oh, nary an eyeglass in sight, my good man. Might as well be the from the new world. We're still recovering <laughs> from the great fire. And the and the reeling from the sickness, yeah, I it's mean, that's, foggy. That's like and guess what happened? You know earlier. what happened? The children they went back to the workhouses, fucking like depressed because this game was just you know everybody knows you can't see 
zebras in the haze. That's what the haze, you know, that's what their camouflage is for, you know? You know, you can um, you can buy horse rugs that are patterned like a zebra so that flies don't land on them. Horse horse rugs? Yeah, rugs for horses, yeah. Oh, I just assumed you meant rugs made of horses. That's, no. Why would you do that? That's brutal. Who knows? Anyway, horse blankets, keep the flies away. Uh, zebras, foggy South London workhouses. Uh, what am I saying? I'm saying... Oh, yes! United were bad. Uh, here's what I'll say. They put in a pretty woeful performance. So much so that for the first half of the second half, if you get that, Crystal Palace had more possession. Crystal Palace had more possession. Uh, United couldn't keep the ball. Every attacking player looked off the pace. Fred's passing was uh, unusually bad. Don't laugh at me. Luke Shaw tried his best. Rashford vanished. Pogba has been injured since January. And, you know, the team haven't looked this bad in every game. And so that this is this is why I'm mentioning this. But you feel that this was a sort of performance that really needed someone like him. And Cavani was so, uh, not bad, just just so unnoteworthy as to not even be mentioned in my uh, in my little preamble there. Seb, people are going to go hot and heavy about this, and I think they already have. You know, when was the last time Manchester United scored a goal? Are they are they going to be relegated? But the truth is uh, that um, they haven't looked this bad since in every game since Pogba has uh, been injured. That that sort of I understand why people are um, why why some of the critical response to it would be to knee jerk back to that moment. Um, but, you know, for vast periods of the season, Pogba's been no help anyway. <laughs> and even when he wasn't injured, he wasn't always playing. So the idea that uh, this is all because he is unavailable, I think is, is a bit is a bit far-fetched. Um, it is, however, uh, undoubted that they looked just terrible last night. Like, they didn't care, basically, is what it looked like. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't argue with that. I'd also say that they didn't offer an awful lot at Stamford Bridge against Chelsea. But, you know, let's be fair. They haven't lost since, I think, the end of January. Um, and whilst we talk about Solskjaer being a streaky coach, and he is, clearly, he's reliant on the performances of individuals and his um, teams have always suffered peaks and troughs, at least his main United teams have. This trough isn't nearly so deep as some of the others that he's encountered. Um, if you think back to where they were at the beginning of the season, this is was a team that conceded six goals at home to Jose Mourinho's Spurs. So, little bit of little bit of context. I actually think they did offer quite... I thought this game was very different to the Chelsea game. I think in the first half of the Chelsea game particularly, Manchester United's... The speed of their passing was... was I mean, it was pretty fast. Like It was faster than, than I've seen of that team this season in most games. Also, the retention of the ball was much better. In, like... I'm not, I feel like I'm not exaggerating when I say that like, they literally couldn't keep the ball last night. But but Joe, like, um, firstly, Stamford Bridge. Stamford Bridge involves a little bit of a trick of the mind sometimes because you've got that slightly lower camera angle. Um, it always feels like... Do you, remember, do you remember watching games at Highbury on TV all those years ago and it would always seem a much quicker game because of the camera angle? It's a little bit like that I've always felt at Stamford Bridge. Are you telling but me also, my eyes deceive me? I, I think a little bit. Um, and also... I, I hate to go back to this and to employ this excuse one more time, but this season is just really weird. Teams go off the boil very, very quickly. Uh, one of the things that happened last night that nobody's really talking about um, because of the May United Palace Borathon is just how bad Villa were uh, against Sheffield United. They were absolutely dismal. And yet 
two or three weeks ago, we're talking about Dean Smith. We not us, but you know the collective us. We're talking about Dean Smith as as a coach of the year, and not unreasonably so. So look, you, I think you just have to to suspend the um, the normal rules of tantrum that go with Manchester United not winning um, for a couple of games because it's happening to everybody bar Man City. Uh, and it seems like each team seems to suffer through this kind of period every six weeks at the moment. And I I don't know, I, I've said some fairly negative things about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in the past, but I don't, beyond just a, a little bit of bluntness and you're quite right, the ball speed thing is a, is a, is an issue sometimes and the accuracy of some of the passing from deep when Pogba's not on the side also a problem but um I don't know it's not it's not a crisis is what I'm trying to say that's kind of what I said in my question though I, I think said, that's the know, problem I kind though, of just it? said it back to you in more words though you, know, <laughs> you like, said it back to me as if I was saying a different thing and I resented <laughs> well, yeah, but it I but I I also I I um belittled you with the Stanford Bridge comment quite successfully you really did you knuckled down (laughs) on my head with that that's that's a really sinister laugh um where are your special lions now but isn't this the thing that that teams teams have boring games it's entirely normal that sometimes stuff doesn't work particularly well and if united generate so much of what they do going through fernandez if you sit somebody on fernandez and i think Milivojevic and McCarthy did well in in the midfield for uh, Crystal Palace. You can close down a lot of what uh, United do. I thought Luke Shaw actually had quite a good game. Um, continuing yeah, yeah, he tried the fact best. that yeah, exactly, and and you know that, that best. <laughs> well, he he found that lovely pass through for Rashford, which Rashford screwed the shot slightly wide for, and you know a lot of what United did that was good came through him. It, it's just I like think, Daniel James chance as well I think that was his cross yeah and you get you know the, the, the thing with football is because it's a low scoring game where luck has a lot to do with it you know there's there's sometimes quite fine margins between United registered an XG of about one depending on which model you go for so there's every chance that if you played that game a hundred times, they would have scored a scrappy goal and everyone would be talking about how Solskjaer's team shows a great deal of resilience under difficult conditions and emerges with the kind of victory that is the hallmark of a team really moving in the right direction. <laughs> because not, not it didn't like happen and because my, the game you know, was boring, then everyone's it was, going off. It wasn't just boring. That's the thing. Like I don't want to dig my elbow into the ribs of Man United fans, but they were actually bad. Like, every player was much worse than they normally are. With yeah, the that's exception, true. maybe, of Luke Shaw. And th- I don't think that's just a boring game. And I Henderson. It made boring. I think the, 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 the result of that was a boring game, but the symptom was, was not, you know, was not related to that. I don't know what it was related to. Um, but, like, even, even Marcus Rashford, for example, who, pro- who probably just needs a rest, right? Uh, Marcus Rashford couldn't keep the ball from going out off the touchline about three times in the game like when it was a simple pass to him like there was there, there's basically uh, I don't know if it's just a, a moment in time or, or a point in that kind of uh, relative season's journey or whatever where lots of players all at the same time are feeling a bit exhausted and a bit spent uh, but it very it certainly looked like that um, because there were so many mistakes that's that's definitely true and I think I think everyone is feeling a degree of fatigue aren't they um with perfect with the, timing the contention of this uh 
uh, of the season. But also, Palace are exactly the kind of team that would give this sort of Manchester United side a problem. They have a very strong physical centre-forward. They have a couple of quick players that can dart inside. Otherwise, they work a really good low block. They've got competitive central midfielders who can close down Fernandes. You know, you're not going to get a huge amount of passing from the Man United double pivot. And so it, it's yeah, a combination. United were lucky that Zaha was unavailable, I think. Yeah, but Townsend and, and Etze were, were both, I mean, they, they both had moments where they looked like they really troubled, particularly that, that double pivot. And Benteke up front gave Maguire a difficult time. So, you know, again, there, there, are, there are certain kinds of sides that are going to pose a team that relies on individual quality and likes to counter-attack at pace problems. And Palace are one of those teams and it's played in crap conditions and the shirts look weird. And, you know, there's just there's just lots and lots of things going on there that I think contribute to a performance being bad rather than just plonking a team down on any pitch against any opponent and them being rubbish. But how many, I mean, more, more broadly, guys, like when was the last time you saw a really good game? What was the last time, last really time you walked away from a game not involving the team you support and thought that was really entertaining? Arsenal, when Arsenal beat someone 3 1 recently. Leicester. Yeah, that okay. was quite Joe. good. I'm just looking back through my notes. In the last, the last game that I was really excited oh, by Dortmund. did involve okay. my team. I, th- I thought Leeds. Southampton was a really exciting game, partly because it was so chaotic and the pitch was so bad. But there have there there have been good games. But I agree, you're right. There there no, fewer no, and Al- between. Alex, keep talking because I think the longer Seb has to make to qualify the point, we both know who's going to make already. The funnier the funnier it will be, and the less impactful it will be. <laughs> Because what he's done there, what he's actually done there, is he's he's set us up in one of those like, well, you you answer this question simply, and then when it comes back to me, what I'll do is I'll I'll just blow you out of the water with what I want to say. And uh, listen, nobody here, nobody here's an idiot, mate. Everyone who listens to the Tifo podcast is uh, smart, right? That's how it works. That's why they're here, yeah. So what Ooh. we're actually going to do okay. is we're going to move on and not let you finish your ever so cool point, yeah. Lions aren't okay. so funny now, are they, mate? Uh, you big fat elephant. Yeah, anyway, um, uh, United <laughs> United go to the Etihad on the Sunday. Perfect timing uh, to have this kind of uh, dazed midweek game. Uh, and, of course, they, they go there retaining their 21-game unbeaten streak. I think that's the way from home. What I'm trying to say without labouring the point is that you can kind of see City tearing United apart on Sunday. Go. Yes. Yes, and I'm thinking. <laughs> thanks, Alex. Do you and want I'm some justification about, for that? Well, specific <laughs> matchups. I'm thinking like, uh, who are McTominay and Fred likely to come up against? They've got we've got Rodri, we got Bernardo, maybe we got De Bruyne. Like, there's a, there's a lot uh, going on in that midfield. Well, it's it's going to be the late runners from deep that I think will cause United the most problems. It'll be when Gundogan or Bernardo Silva or whoever plays in that midfield role pushes forwards especially if City go with the the false nine thing where they've been using De Bruyne in that role, but playing very, very fluidly. I mean, it's not it's not your classic false nine who just drops off and plays between the lines. De Bruyne's all over the place. So I think with, uh, particularly if, um, if Matic plays, that absence of pace tracking those runners is going to cause Man United huge problems. 
Do you think they will play with that? Because I, I, I know they played with the kind of that, you know, the four-three-three with the free eights against Wolves with Jesus in, in the number nine role. You, what what would be um, a factor or a decision that might cause them to go back to uh, the false nine against United? I guess he feels maybe that that Maguire particularly can be drawn out of position, um, and because Maguire quite likes to go forwards anyway, uh, and if Maguire's looking to push on and help out the midfield. Um, by stopping those runners at source, that's going to create a lot of space for City's wide players to cut inside. And particularly with Mares, Foden, Sterling, whoever plays out there, City have generated quite a lot from from that sort of run and those sorts of movements. So I can see how creating that space in behind by looking to suck Maguire into an advanced position would be would be particularly dangerous. Uh, Seb, would you think this could be a big scoreline? No, no, no. I think um, if there are goals at all, that would be a bit of a surprise. Oh, you think it would be a nil-nil? Yeah, because I think United will be so negative that, I mean, that's kind of, I think United are in position now. If you look at their, their upcoming fixtures, um, this all of a sudden, this looks like a, a kind of game where a point is a really good result. So City away, uh, first leg of the Europa League tie against AC Milan at home, West Ham at home, Milan away, Leicester away. Like if you if you begin that sequence with a point, I think that looks pretty good. No, well Seb thinks it's going to be a nil-nil draw. Alex, I'd like a score uh, prediction from you, please, too. Uh, so one of you will definitely be wrong uh, on Tuesday. Well, Seb thought that Chelsea would beat Man United at home, and I said it would be a nil-nil draw. So yeah, you did uh, actually. You did that on our story chat, didn't you? That's the past, mate. That's the past. Sure. Yeah. No, I'm just bringing it up because you know. I like to feel mm-hmm. vindicated. Um, I think, <laughs> I think three-one City. You think Man United will score? Okay. Uh, well, there we go. That that will be something to look forward to on Sunday. Yeah, I'm sure the game will be televised in all the ordinary places. So, hop on that train. Uh, let's talk about Crystal Palace because there's a, a rumor afoot. Uh, and a rumor only, by the way. We don't know anything. Okay, so this isn't the thing. But maybe. Hodgson leaves in the summer. Hmm? What if he did? Is this, because of the way that Palace play, is this the kind of age-old, how does Stoke move on from Tony Pulis situation? You know, uh, it, could, it, could, it be, could it become that? And if it is, which teams have done that well and how do they do it? Because that's a, that's a difficult sort of transition to make, isn't it? It's really difficult. Um, and it's, it's difficult because uh, there's a time lag, isn't there? If you bring in a manager who wants to play... A really different style of football and the last time Palace did this they they brought in De Boer and that went horrifically badly um, but you inherit a playing squad that's been built by another manager with a different style of play and so you either have to get that playing squad to start doing things very differently or you have to transition that playing squad quickly enough that the style of football changes successfully but not so quickly that you start with a new starting 11 because that doesn't work either um, so it's incredibly hard to do. Um, when Pulis left Stoke and they started to transition, Mark Hughes was actually given quite a lot of time and quite a lot of transfer budget to build that transition. Um, but even then, it wasn't that successful. The only one I can think of that's really worked that well has been Leicester, where they where they went from sort of you know the very counter attacking style of Ranieri and they've segued uh, to to Brendan Rodgers' style. But it's even that is, you know, that's taken a long time and a lot of transfers. Did you call him Brendan Rosser? 
The Rosmunds. I just sort of butchered his name, but I was going to gloss over it because I can't be bothered to correct myself. <laughs> it feels like that example, Claude Puel did a little bit of the, he took the bullet as the kind of the between eras guy who came in and adapted some things which were initially unpopular, alienated a few players so that eventually Brendan Rodgers could come in and be the good cop. Um, I mean, he so sort of, if it, he, he almost did that at Southampton as well. I, I think Puel is an interesting case because actually at Southampton, he was part of what made our defence much, much stronger. But like you say, it was so boring. <laughs> and there were there were was, players who was. were just going, oh, really? Um, but you could see why he was... You could see he was trying to transition towards something and wasn't given the time. Um, but yeah, I think that's I think that's an important. You know, maybe what Palace need to do is is hire Claude Powell to kill everyone with tedium for a year, and then bring in someone good. Do you, isn't there an argument to say that actually this summer is the perfect time for Palace to make that change because Hodgson's contract's up, and the list of contract expirations this summer at Palace is very very long indeed. Like, I'm going to read a couple of them players whose contract ends by the 30th of June include Gary Cahill, James MacArthur, James McCarthy, Wayne Hennessy, Mamadou Sarko, Christian Benteke, Patrick Van Arnholt, Stephen Henderson, Andros Townsend, Scott Dan, Martin Kelly, Nathaniel Klein, Joel Ward, Connor Wickham, Jeffrey Schlupp, Tyreek Mitchell, and that's it. But that's still a lot. And there's not many of those where you think, I mean, you definitely, definitely signed Tyreek Mitchell to a new contract. Yeah, for sure. But a lot of those players, I think you can look at and say, well, you know, they're getting on. There's there's certainly experience there, but there's also a couple of players where you even forget that they're Palace players like Connor Wickham. So it, it does, I agree, this would be a good time. But I also think given the financial circumstances in which all of football finds itself, do you really want to be committing to hiring a new manager on probably a fairly significant wage and also looking to rebuild a squad quite that much. It, it feels like while the contract situation is, is set up for that, the overall financial situation isn't. No, I know. I, I get that argument. I, I just think it's a really good time to lose a lot of money off your wage bill um, and potentially freshen up without... Because my, my fear when a new manager comes in this situation is that a couple of players get jettisoned, they get bombed out and they're starting to train with the under 23s or, or the youth team. And there's this kind of glut of misery at the club, which saps the energy off everybody else. And I think this is kind of one of those rare situations in which you don't have to kind of sidestep that landmine, which is which is really nice. Um, yeah. no, I I'm not saying that. that it's not really, really complicated in other ways. Clearly it is, but it's, um, it's an, an unlikely and unusual opportunity. Seb, you watched the uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach nil one Borussia Dortmund game, didn't you? And you had something to tell us. I did, because I'm cool and European now. Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I just uh -huh. wanted to point people towards the towards Dortmund's winning goal. Just beautiful bit of counter-attacking football. One of those where the ball moves 70, 80 yards in the blink of an eye, and it's all one-touch passes and perfect timing, and finished off by a really nice finish by Jaden Sancho. Just a really nice bit of football, uh, which was a uh, very nice way to, to finish my Tuesday night. It's also worth, I think, observing, and it is a beautiful goal. People should go and check it out. But the role that Haaland plays in dropping off and playing one of those one-touch passes, I think bodes very, very well for his development as a, 
a striker beyond just what we know him to be currently. I think that's an area of his game which doesn't get recognised enough. He he scored a... Do you guys remember the goal he scored in Leipzig uh, probably a month or two ago where he was part of the build-up and then he scored at the back post um, with like a really thumping header? Like he is a he is a much better um, facilitator that he's given credit for. People think of him in making those kind of those those runs off the last man and being all pace and elbows and arms and you know moving around in that kind of slightly flaily way. But he's uh, he's very good technically. I think. I, I just don't think we necessarily get to see it quite as much as for sure, as for sure. we could do. Also, Marco Royce's one touch pass that curved and I mean just it's just a great goal. Someone watched the swallow Napoli as well. Who was that? <laughs> that was that Seth was as well. me. That was me again. Cool and European now. And uh, you sound so cool. You've got nothing in your life other than football. Is that? Other than is that, football. That I, I, that's pretty much it. I'm even in quarantine, so there is literally nothing I can do to uh, expand my horizons at all at the moment. But it was good because it was it was one of my it involved one of my favourite tropes, which was two penalty uh, two penalties in stoppage time. And both given because the other had been given, if that makes sense. So uh, it looked like Napoli had won the game when uh, the referee kind of bought a, a very, very, very soft penalty, just a kind of a like a, a dying giraffe collapse in the penalty box. Um, and then Sassuolo went straight down the other end of the pitch uh, and pretty much did the same. And the referee was blowing for the penalty even before the foul had been committed because it was one of those, wasn't it? It's like that that that, that sort of unwritten rule that. Yeah, but you've given one down the other end, so really, you know, you owe us, and everybody knew exactly what was happening. Um, Gattuso threw his jacket off. Uh, Lorenzo Insigne kicked an advertising hoardie on his way down the uh, on the way down the tunnel, and Napoli threw away some points. But it was great fun, three three. Okay, well, finally, uh, welcome to Joe's player quotes and facts database. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. Yes, welcome to the database. Uh, today we've got one entry that I've managed to do whilst Seb was talking. Uh, Vicente Gaeta, <laughs> the Crystal Palace goalkeeper. Now, uh, the quality of this one may be reflected in the context in which it was uh, delivered. Um, <clears throat> but here's the fact about Vicente Gaeta. Uh, and the fact comes uh, is copy from the All Football app. So thanks to the All Football app for this copy. However, the young girl was picked on for wearing it. So just in context for that line, is uh, a young girl uh, had a non-uniform day at school and decided to wear her Crystal Palace kit. Uh, And then she was picked on for wearing it, naturally, because, you know, Crystal Palace fans, bottom feeders. So you must shout at them when you see them. I think that's the rule in schools. Is that the rule? I assume so. And her father said she no longer wanted to support the Eagles, which is... Uh, it would be a shame. Uh, Gaeta saw the tweet and without even being mentioned and responded to the upset dad and the Palace goalkeeper invited both to come to the club's next home game at Selhurst Park while also offering his gloves to the girl and even proposing a spot in the academy for her. So that's the fact and I know that's a sort of standard ordinary story about, uh, you know, uh, footballers I well, which, depending on which way you look at it, football is getting involved in the community or cynical PR work. Um, I liked it mostly because I like the idea. Of, I don't like the idea of it because it's sad. Obviously, I don't want this to happen, but I like the idea of uh, people being picked on for what 
for which shirt they wear at the school. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's some humour in that, that it's a palace shirt. Why does a palace shirt get picked on? You know, you live probably, pro- they probably live near Crystal Palace. I mean, it seems like an ordinary thing. What's the... I wonder... I'm just trying to understand the logic of the picking... The picker, you know? Who... The, the, the person doing the picking. What's the logic behind that? Just that that's a... They're a shit club or something? Presumably that's it? Not, not well considered, hmm? Or is there more to it? Do you think there could be more to it? Maybe... Maybe they're in the... Maybe they're in the QPR catchment area. The quote from Vincent Gaeta is... Uh, is Well, this comes alongside a picture of him saving a shot. <laughs> this is a funny one photograph of him saving a shot I guess there was a win I couldn't work out what team it was we're trying to shoot against him but he said sorry but no uh, with clapping hands a uh, the stop sign emoji and then four eagles I am very happy eagles <laughs> sorry but no So there you go. That's the uh, this this uh, this is this episode's instalment of Joe's Player Quotes and Facts Database. It's Joe's Quotes and Facts Database. We'll be back next time with more, probably. I'll try to remember to do some in between uh, in between now and then. I, I I feel extra buoyed this this episode because people told me they told me directly not to worry about you two. And whether you understand me or not, and whether you respond sufficiently to me or not, don't worry about it, because other people get it. They were disheartened to hear that at the end of my Rocket League analogy, my wonderful Rocket League analogy in the last episode, that uh, I'd lost confidence in myself. No, but I thought, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take. No, shush no, up, no, shush no, up, no. See, shush up now. No, shush no, no, now. because stop talking. You're. You you doubted yourself throughout your rocket league analogy. You even apologised for it halfway through. Yes, and because in fact, that, there was that's no, what I'm th- saying. Was... That, that's the relation to the, the that's the, that's the lack of self confidence. I I felt like I, this is a good thing to say, and then the lack of response in the room made me think, oh maybe not. But you know what I should I did I did the thing that the footballers that we all look up to <laughs> never do, which is doubt themselves. I second guessed. That's all this I'm is, saying, and I'll never do that again. I'm so pleased yeah. that you've made a breakthrough. Well, there's just some, there's a lot of tipos out there that were uh, that were very supportive, and uh, you know, right? Uh, that's probably the end, isn't it? Seb, thanks to you. Yeah, thanks, Joe. And Alex, thanks to you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks as usual to producer Adonis, and we'll be back on Tuesday with more game relevant podcasting for you. Au revoir. <laughs>